Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A loud, blaring, metallic ringing fills my ears. It's three in the morning, and a fire had just been reported. I quickly throw on my boots and rope the straps around my shoulders, sprint to the pole, slide down with haste, and meet the rest of my crew downstairs. I'm the captain of Station 3. The name's Pat Jeffries. And even in the middle of the night, I'm ready for any situation. I find my lieutenant as we enter the truck, and I ask him for a report. Good morning, Captain. We have a box alarm fire on Cider Street. Pretty standard stuff, it sounds like. But the operator said that the caller sounded more panicked than one would expect. Just a heck of a lot of screaming and shouting. I figured somebody was trapped inside the house, or that it was getting out of control. We don't slow down based on the severity of the situation. We're full throttle all the way until we reach the emergency. Any time lost could mean lives lost. To this day, despite being on the job for 15 years, I've only seen a handful of deaths. Our station was revered for being best in the city, and one of the best in our state. And I wanted to keep it that way, even if it meant losing my own life. Cider Street was just a five-minute drive, and the roads were clear, so we made it in less than three minutes, despite our enormous fire engine being a bit slow in the corners. When we made it to the address, we could smell smoke, but there was no fire, and I figured maybe the flames extinguished themselves somehow or that the caller had overreacted, but I could still feel the heat and the exterior of the house was still being eaten away by something. When I looked closer, I realized that the fire hadn't been put out. What I thought was black smoke at first turned out to be black fire. This was confirmed by a fellow firefighter's infrared camera. There was a fire, and it was black as the sky. Now We knew we couldn't just sit around despite everything looking at being scientifically impossible. I made my way to the couple outside. They were a middle-aged man and woman, and the woman was having a full-blown meltdown. Her husband took her by the shoulders and tried to calm her as best as he could, and she blurted out to me that her daughter was still inside, and the fire appeared to have started near her room. I asked her why she thinks the fire might be black. She did not answer. She only screamed a horrible, vocal cord shattering scream that brought her to her knees. 
Her husband said nothing. His face slumped in sorrow, covered in tears and sweat. I called for backup, especially paramedics, and a few more engines, just in case. We tried putting the sable flames out with water first. We hadn't seen anything like this before, so we needed to see what this fire was all about. The infrared camera would let us know if the fire was waning. We doused the outer shell of the house with water pumped at the highest pressure possible. The liquid just dropped along the exterior, with the inferno remaining completely intact. If you looked at the camera, you wouldn't think it was anything special. The fire was a normal white tapering off into orange, red, yellow, blue, and eventually gray smoke. But when you put the camera down, and you looked with your eyes, it was as dark as dark can get. Smoke was black as well, making it hard to differentiate the two from time to time. We decided that someone had to go in and find the daughter, her name being Emily. Her bedroom was the second floor just past the exit of the stairs. Two firefighters, John and Michael, would go in and find the girl and get out as quickly as possible. They strapped on their oxygen masks and brought axes to break through anything that got in their way. I would keep in touch with them from the outside while we tried to find something to snuff out this pitch-dark inferno. John was a hotshot who had been around a few years. He wasn't too worried. He thought it best not to think about why the fire was black and only think about saving Emily. Michael was a probie firefighter, the lowest rank. He was a rookie. He'd only been on the squad for a few months, and despite his selflessness bordering on recklessness, he also could get rattled easily. Going into this, he looked utterly terrified. His hand shook as he strapped on his oxygen mask. He only went on with this plan because he knew someone would have to do it. And he never showed a lot of regard for his own safety. He knew he could die on the job. He was fine with that. But the thought of death would still turn his blood into ice. With some hesitation, they went to the door and walked into the house. When they did, an incredible amount of smoke leaked through the entrance, more than I would usually see. Because of how dark it was and how black the smoke was, we didn't realize just how much smoke was released by these horrible flames. Black clouds could be seen in the neighborhood for days afterward, some mistaking them for storm clouds. Michael said he couldn't see a damn thing inside, and John wasn't doing much. I asked the husband where the stairs were, and his wife was too much of a wreck to speak. He said they weren't too far from the doorway on the right. I relayed that information to the men inside, and they found the stairs quickly. Meanwhile, we threw everything and the kitchen sink at the fire. We first used normal extinguishers, but they had no effect. Then we took shovels and threw dirt at it, but this also did nothing. The other fire engines arrived quickly and were just as perplexed and frightened as we were when we first saw the true nature of the flame. I kept in touch with Michael and John while the others brainstormed a way to put an end to this. Michael told me that some wooden support beams had fallen on the stairs 
and they'd have to bust through them, which would take a few minutes. I acknowledged that and ordered a few more men to go in with them, and in total, five firefighters were in the house, all trying to clear away the debris so that they could save Emily from the flames. Although, well, at the time, I thought it was a lost cause. The amount of smoke should have already killed her, and in most cases, I would have backed out of rescuing her and focused on dousing the flames and calling in the recovery team. But this fire was not like any other known. I had to know what it was and everything about it, so that if it happened again, we knew how to extinguish it. As the men on the inside kept hacking away at the timber, the fire was eating through the roof with ease. It looked like that, despite it being black flames. It could spread and destroy much more easily than a normal fire. I asked the husband if he knew anything about how the fire started, and he said that neither of them had any idea, only that they woke up and found the fire outside of Emily's room. They tried calling out to her, but there was no answer, and the fire had cut off every path to her bedroom. I asked if they remembered any electronics being plugged in or any strange happenings around the house, and he said he didn't recall anything out of the ordinary. He did, however, notice his daughter acting strangely in recent weeks. They had just moved into this house from another state, and she had been emotionally distant and short-tempered. They thought she was just missing her friends from her old school and didn't think much of it. Now that detail made me look closer at the flames themselves. The shape wasn't natural. The flames flowed in a more fluid fashion and seemed to split off into strands like a bunch of spindly flames that had fused together into one night-colored inferno. The way it flowed kind of reminded me of hair blowing in the wind. I asked, out of curiosity, if the man had a picture of Emily. He sifted through his wallet and pulled out a small photo with him, his wife, and Emily. He pointed her out as the girl between them. And I nearly collapsed in horror when I saw that her hair was as black as the fire that threatened her life, and its shape mirrored the way that these flames rippled. I looked back at the fire to make sure I was seeing things the way I thought I was, and indeed, the flames looked very similar to her hair, which was down to her shoulders, had plenty of volume too. At that moment, I rang up Michael and asked how those beams were coming along, and he said that they had just broken through the last one and made it to the top of the stairs. I reminded them that her room was the second door just past the exit. There was only one hallway that went straight ahead, with no left or right past the stairs. The other engines kept blasting the fire with water, even though it was doing nothing. John then said that the heat was the worst at her door and flames surrounded it. The smoke put visibility at absolute zero. Michael, being the loose cannon he is, decided he would run through the flames and burst down the doors. John begged him not to do it. I wasn't sure about it either. 
But the other three firefighters present agreed that it was the only way to save her life. At this point, her mother was unconscious, having fainted from a panic attack. Her husband simply held her in his lap, stroking her forehead, praying for her suffering to end. So I gave Michael the green light. He rushed forward with a grunt, and a huge crash was heard as he began to hack away at the wooden door. He yelled a bit as the fire burned a little bit through his coat, which, while fireproof, could only take so much, and it was most certainly not made for fires made of black flames. Right as the door finally collapsed, I heard a scream. It was a woman's scream making it clear that Emily was still alive. But this scream was not one of fear or physical pain, no. It sounded like a scream of rage, of a scream of a desire to kill anyone who saw her. And right as I heard that, Michael let out a howl of his own. And within a few seconds, he was silent. Another firefighter ran in to help, and he let out a scream similar to Michael's. And as that went on, Emily continued to shout in a fury. I frantically called for Michael, John, and the other firefighters, but there were no answer. I was ready to call off the operation entirely, abandon the home, and hope it would extinguish itself eventually. For the first time in my life, I had run out of ideas. But a few seconds later, Marston clapped me on the shoulder and said that the fire was out. Now, not quite believing him, I looked at the home again, and just as he said, the black blaze was gone, only smoke in its place. I looked back at the infrared camera, and while the exterior was still warm, there was no flames. Seconds later, to my astonishment, John walked out the front door, carrying Emily. Her mother and father ran towards him, took her into their arms, and smothered her in tears and affection while thanking John profusely. He didn't acknowledge them, only walking back to the fire truck, taking off his mask and helmet, and slumping onto the back ledge. I asked him if the others were alive, and he just shook his head. Here's a strange thing. He should have been red from the heat and physical exertion, panting and sweating. But instead, he was completely white. His jaws sagged, and he was without emotion. Whatever he'd seen must have been too much for his young mind to accept. The paramedics were sent in to recover the remains of the other four firefighters, while John and Emily were taken to the hospital for further observation. Thirty minutes later, the paramedics returned from the house with nothing in their body bags, as nothing remained of those four men. Not even their oxygen tanks, made of thick metal, survived whatever they had gone through. Video taken of the fire spread around the news and a thorough investigation was launched. Chemists, 
biologists, ex-firefighters, pyrotechnics, hell, none of them could figure out what happened that terrible morning on Cider Street. It'll always be a mystery, unless two people speak up. John and Emily. You're probably wondering about their injuries. They weren't serious. Only a few minor cuts and burns, but the psychological wounds were far more serious. Neither of them spoke for days, only sitting in the hospital bed staring at the ceiling, not acknowledging anyone else around them. When they were released, they were each assigned a therapist to help them with the trauma and to figure out what caused the fire. From what I understand, neither of them would reveal a single detail about the incident. They were more or less pretending it had never happened. Emily moved back to her old home with her family, and we haven't seen her since. John was never the same. He was always pale, spoke quietly, and sometimes refused to go on emergency calls, only laying on the ground curled in a ball, shaking madly. He left firefighting. He became a nurse. Well, I ran into him not too long ago, and while he was pleasant, it was clear that he didn't like talking about his days at the department and he still looked as pale as he ever had. He sometimes stared off at something that wasn't there, as if he was seeing what had happened to Michael in his mind over and over again. According to his wife, he absolutely refuses to talk about what happened to anyone, not even her. And wanting answers, I contacted Emily's mother and asked her, she had told them anything about that night of the black fire. She said that she claims to not remember anything about it, much to my frustration. The closest thing I had to a clue was that she had taken up smoking and preferred to use black matches. I decided to run with it, and I went to the abandoned lot where the house had once stood and looked for anything interesting. After spending hours through the fresh grass that had grown after the fire, I finally found a sign of the true cause of this wretched event. Something I had suspected from the moment Emily's mother mentioned her smoking habits. A single black match with some strange symbols etched into it, sticking out of the dirt. 